Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 22nd, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Holy Seed, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Who shall separate us from the love of God? the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. There's no person or no act of government that can separate you from the love of God. None of the the spiritual messengers of, of God, the holy righteous angels of God, nor the demons. There's nothing you can do as one who is created. You can go as far as you want in the universe or as low as you want. Within that span, there's nothing in between that can separate you from the love of God. And just in case he missed anything, nor anything else in all creation. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, I just want to thank Pastor Ed for delivering the message last week and showing us the hope that we have and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Um, This scripture this week uh, is one of those ones, though, that uh, evokes a lot of emotion. Uh, This one has a tendency to sometimes be the equivalent of political discussions at the Thanksgiving table and, and can just bring about a lot of things. It can bring about anger or, um, or just mildly peeved, but really, really angry. Or it can bring about uh, anxiety, or I'm just a little concerned or worried. Um, it can bring about hopelessness in feeling that, man, I just don't know where God is going uh, with this. I know that it is a difficult doctrine. I struggled over this doctrine for years myself at the early stages of my faith. But I want to remind us that Paul says to us at the very beginning in Romans 1, he says, for he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God even unto salvation. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Today I will be unapologetic, but I will simply go through the text and read what the text says. It will be a struggle for many of us. But Paul also said to us, right after he said that the gospel is the power of God even unto salvation, he said that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. I think that some of us sometimes think of our faith or it'd be wonderful if God would save a big Hollywood star that was living such a pagan life that it would just be so beautiful to see that person come to know Jesus Christ because they would represent the gospel in such a way and they'd bring such merit and such value to the faith if God would just get a hold of their heart. My word to you today is that he saved you. And he is using you to be that light in a dark world. We get it wrong sometimes when we think about God's sovereignty and how God goes about choosing his team He chooses his team not likened to that of our playground in our adolescence. It's not where he assigns two bullies who sort the teams based upon the merit and the value that each player would bring to the team. We have a tendency to think of God or at least to think about election or choice or appointed or called within these terms or even this radical word predestination. 
He puts it into perspective for us and wants us to understand that he did not choose you because you are going to bring a specific value to his team. As one lady once put it to me, God's really got to be thankful to have me on his side. I trust God's lightning bolt not to hit me. We don't bring a value to God. We are, in fact, God's affection. But we don't think for one moment that he chose me or elected me or predestined me or called me or any of those things because I'm going to be more special than this other person. C.S. Lewis once said that no sooner do we receive the love of God, we think that there is something intrinsically lovable about us rather than it being exclusively all about him. I think that most of us would agree that everything in Christendom is about God's glory. I think we would all admit and probably raise our hands if we say, do you believe that man is lost and incapable of saving himself? We would raise our hands. But the moment that someone stands up here and says that God sovereignly chose you before the foundation of the world, these become fighting words. My hope today is that you won't get caught up in your American justice, but you will look to a holy and a sovereign God, knowing that he didn't choose you like we did on playgrounds. He didn't even choose you last. You see, God knows who are his because he not only foreknew them, he predestined them. Romans 9, verses 1 through 18, finds Paul in a, his heart broken over the rejection of Christ by his people, the Jews. They have been given so much, God's chosen people. And Paul insists, he's insisting here that God will keep his promise to Israel. Not everyone, in fact, will learn born to Israel is truly Israel. He's going to give specific examples to narrow our ability to try and end run this thinking. He'll give these specific examples that God does, in fact, choose those who will receive this blessing of salvation. And the following passage is going to tackle whether their choice by God or God's choice is fair. He'll ask this question. We're going to jump into it today, but let me first pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, as we go into your word with, with tender hearts, Lord, asking for your truth, your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Lord, that we would read and comprehend or at least apprehend your words as you've given them to us, that our trust and our hope would be in you and in you alone. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace and a greater understanding of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Paul's first point here is going to come to us in verses 1 through 5. And 1 through 5, it's going to be about Paul's anguish and what Paul is suffering from here in great sorrow. This is an anguish that I know as a parent we've all felt. An anguish where we look at maybe a lost sibling or a lost child and we say to ourselves, I would gladly trade my own salvation if only it would mean that my child would be saved. Listen to Paul's anguish starting in verse one. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, telling the truth. I'm not lying, Paul's saying here. Do you hear the anguish in his voice? If I could only trade, I'll trade myself for all my kinsmen. It's not a sacrifice that Paul has to offer. It's not his responsibility. Paul is expressing his broken heart over the fact that the majority of the Jewish people have not have rejected Christ as the Messiah. And therefore they have rejected the way to salvation. The only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. He's going to list the many privileges that God has given to Israel as his chosen people. But he starts by saying his conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I hear this a lot from people where they come to me and say, Jeff, my conscience is telling me that I should do this or I should do that. I want to educate you that your conscience may not be the thing, it may not be the Holy Spirit that's telling you that. The test of your conscience is does it align itself with what God's word says? Does it follow the commands of God? Does it follow the principles of God's word? If it does not follow the command and it does not follow the general principles of God's word, then it's not your conscience, it's your fleshly desire. We can't just wake up one day and say, you know what, God put it upon my heart to rob banks and I'm gonna start robbing banks because God's gonna bless me in doing that. No, he's not. And no, he did not. So Paul is pleading with his conscience that, and he's going to utilize God's word, the Old Testament, to validate his conscience here. That he is, in fact, telling the truth. He's not lying. But he's burdened for the lost. He knows that God is the master of his conscience. And that we should, in fact, always obey conscience when it follows God's word. But Paul is using strong language to validate and emphasize his point of truth. He's gonna make sure that we understand that he's willing to trade places, but trade places with whom? We look at the whom here in verse four. It says, they, who he's talking about here, are Israelites. And to them, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah coming from this lineage who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Paul wants to make sure that we understand his audience that he's talking to here, that he's talking to his kinsmen, he's talking to the Jews. All throughout Romans, he has been talking to both Judaizers and antinomians. The Judaizers are those who are saying it's law, it's law, it's law. We must obey, we must obey, we must obey. And the antinomians are these Gentiles who are saying, no, 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 grace, it's just grace. You can do anything you want. Sin, do all you want, it's grace. And he's saying you're wrong. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a focus on the person of Christ. It is our dependence, our hope, our trust, our faith in Christ. Christ. This is the only thing that leads to, to the eternal life. So his point two here, as he segues, is going to be in verses 6 through 13. Not all descendants from Israel are Israel. 
This seems odd. Paul begins to show or deal with an enormous question. It's one that's going to dominate the next three chapters of Romans. Who's Israel? Who's he really talking about? So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about this subject. And if God gave to Israel all of those covenants, all those promises and privileges, what happens to his relationship with Israel now that Israel has in fact rejected him as Messiah? Why aren't they all saved? Why aren't they all falling to their knees? Why is there seemingly no faith? He's going to say in verse 5, 9 5, he says, he's going to list the privileges of these words, right? And he's going to say, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah. He's affirming that the Messiah will in fact come from the lineage of Judaism, that they'll come from ethnic Israel. He wants to make sure that people understand that Jesus is a descendant of David. All those lineage reports that were in Genesis, all those lineages that were in Chronicles, all those lineages are lining themselves up to show God's prophecy, God's promise is being fulfilled. But we can't forget that Jesus' earthly ministry, those three and a half years that Jesus walked and shared the gospel with people, his primary audience, his target of this gospel was, in fact, the Jews first. He was after the Jews. If you want to write it down for later looking at Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, right? This is Jesus' earthly life, and Jesus says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's setting the standard, the primary as to where we're going to go and where we're going to tell this gospel. Or Matthew 15, 24, this is what Jesus said. I was sent, he's talking about himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So during his earthly life, Jesus was focused on the Jews. They had the priority in the ministry. Why? He lists the attributes of them. One, the the adoption. They are God's chosen people. Two, the glory. Three, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs from their race, which is the Israelites, and the Messiah who would come from this lineage, from David from the root of Jesse, David's father. We start to understand that this lineage has played such a part that Judaism thinks that just because I was born as an ethnic Jew, I am God's chosen person. I am saved. Paul's going to peel this apart, and you can see why such hostility, such anger would start to take place within those relationships because he's telling them something that they've put their whole hope in. I'm chosen, therefore I'm saved. But listen to what he says. In verse 6, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So why aren't they all saved? Why aren't they all following Christ? Why aren't they accepting Jesus as the Messiah? Why? He's going to answer, for or because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. These are fighting words. Verse 7, he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. More fighting words. But, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
Paul's first objective here is to defend the character of God. He's going to validate that his word has not failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And then Paul begins to make a distinction between the physical descendants of Israel and what we, in fact, might call true Israel. The physical descendants versus the true Israel. He's going to show a remnant. Future chapters will get to that subject of the remnant. But he says something similar here um, at the beginning of the letter in Romans 2. It was actually in 2, 28 and 29. Remember when Paul said this, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. In other words, he just said, you're not just a Jew because you were born as an ethnic Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Circumcision is specifically outward and specifically physical. But he's going to say it different. He's going to say, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. So God who works in the heart is being used here. And how is that matter of the heart? By the spirit, not by the letters. His praise is not from man, but from God. Interchangeably, right, is Romans 9, verse 8. He says this means that in verse 8, he says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You see, the word of God has not failed in purpose because we don't understand here that he's replacing the Israel with the Gentiles. He's not doing that. And it's for or because not all Israel belongs to Israel. So we have to peel that back. And not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, just because you're from Abraham doesn't guarantee that you're going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what does this mean? This last thing, remember, he said about this time next year in verse 9, I will return and Sarah should be given, uh, have a son. If you want to turn to it, go to Genesis uh, 18.20. So in Genesis 18.20, this is what he's saying. This is what Paul's quoting here. He's saying this in 18.20. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son and Sarah was listening at the door. You remember that scene? And then in verse 12, so Sarah laughed, right? She's, or he's nearing 100 years old. She's very, very old. And she's saying to herself, That's, you're out of your mind, God. You're out of your mind. I'm not going to have a child. But God is making this promise that there's going to be a child. So here's what's great. Look back just a page or so at Rome, or Genesis 17, and I believe it's verse 21. It says, but here's what God said. He says, but I will establish my covenant. This is his contract, his promise, right? I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. That's so great, right? She hasn't even had the child and God's already named it. You can almost see Abraham and Sarah putting their arms around each other. Well, we were thinking about the name Larry and... <laughs> So Isaac, okay, you said it, therefore he's going to be Isaac, right? So it's incredible that God in his power, God in his sovereignty is telling her, you're going to have a kid a year from now, and his name's going to be Isaac, and this is who my covenant is going to be upon, Isaac. 
who comes from the root of Jesse, right? Or no, I'm getting forward to David. David's the root of, uh, the father of, or the son of Jesse. But Paul's gonna make this distinction here. And in this distinction between this, what he's gonna do is he refers to children and offspring. And in the English Standard Version, you're reading children and offspring, children and offspring, offspring and children. But I'm telling you, there's two Greek words that are used here to describe this in each one of these cases. And in some cases, he uses the word technon. And this word means child or son or daughter or offspring. But he uses a different word in the same sentence. He uses the word sperma. The word is where we get the term sperm. It means seed. It means uh, an animal that can propagate the species, right? By extension, it means children or offspring. So it's important to why he chose those two separate words to describe children and offspring. If we were to reread verses seven through nine, this is how it would read. It says, and not all are the seed. They're not all the sperma. They're not all the chosen seed of Abraham because they are his children, they're technon, but through Isaac shall his sperma, his seed, be named. This means that it is not the children, technon, of the flesh who are the technon of God, but the technon of the promise are counted as seed. He keeps interchanging these. And he says, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a sperma, a son, a son who was in fact the covenant with and that the covenant would be set based upon him. And so immediately the Jews are kind of maybe shaking their heads and thinking, okay, I get this. So we're descendants of Isaac. You know, and he came from Abraham, so it's all good, right? But Paul is simply saying here that not everyone who is descended from Israel ethnically belongs to true Israel. It matches that similar statement that he made in John 8, Jesus made in John 8, 36 and 39. It says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring, technon, of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. In other words, you've just passed this down from generation to generation. He says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Ah, they're drawn back into that. I have birthright. I come from Abraham, right? Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the work Abraham did. How did Abraham live? By faith. By faith. No, 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 no. We're from Abraham, but not by faith. You see, God's illustration of this is that if we looked at the different lines of the lineage, we would see that from Abraham, remember who the first kid was of Abraham? It was, in fact, Ishmael. And he also had Isaac. Well, Isaac had both Jacob and Esau. And Jacob brought about both Judah and Israelites, the, the national Jews. And then Judah, of course, brought about ethnic Judaism. And also from him came Jesus. That's where we get the root of Jesse, David, and a descendant. So that one line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Jesus is the lineage that we're talking about here. And from this group comes the remnant, which will in fact be the true Israel. 
But the children of the promise are the ones that are counted as the seed. The children of the promise. So who are the children of the promise? Well, first of all, they have to come from the promised child, which was Isaac. That's where the covenant was established. But he wants to eliminate more thoughts on this particular way and not allow our minds to wander. From his seed are more to come, right? From his seed, there's a continuation. Culture would ask, what about Abraham's kids? What about the birth order? Isn't there a right within the birth order? The firstborn son has the birthright. Well, Ishmael's the firstborn. Isaac's the second. But yet he's the God, he's the child of promise. We can see the same thing in God's pattern. Adam was the first, first man. But yet in Colossians 1.15, it tells us about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So how is the second Adam, the firstborn, and the first Adam is not because of God's sovereignty in that process? Right? Look at what it says in verse 10. He wants to peel back the layers more on this. So in verse 10, he says, and not only so, not only, did, not only is there this, but I also want to make sure that you clearly understand this. But also when Rebecca, right, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, just to make clarity, all children are in fact born, but not all the children are the seed of God's children. God is expressing here his absolute sovereignty that he chose a specific child in this. It's distinctively different. It's contradistinction to our works and or our choice, but it is limited to those whom he calls, right? He's not acting like on a playground where he's saying, you know what, I'm having a hunch that Jacob is gonna be a better player than Esau, so I'm going with Jacob. He's not basing it upon that, and he wants to make that crystal clear. So in verse 11, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. This sends many of us into a tailspin. God's sovereign election, his purpose of election, and that this purpose of election would continue to bring more seed and more seed and more seed and more seed, not just because of whom you were born to. This is not saying that just because you were born into a Christian family, I've grown up my whole life at Highlands, I've always been a Christian. None of that is true. You are a Christian because of who God is and who God is alone. It is he who saved you. It is all the glory or nothing goes to him. It has nothing to do with us. And in this, right, he's saying that both kids are from Isaac. Pastor Bob, in the, in the week, week to come, will be talking about the illustration becomes clay from one lump. So from one man, our father Isaac, comes two children and not because of his foreknowledge, he knew who they were ahead of time, right? He named Isaac a year before he was born. He didn't have a gender reveal party. He knew what was happening. And it wasn't because of their birth order, because Esau was born first. Jacob literally, his name means heel catcher or trickster. 
He would go to trick his older brother out of his birthright and thus fulfill the prophecy that he's talking about, what's been written about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It has nothing to do with their works, good or bad, because they hadn't done it. It is in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Continue with what? The seed of God's chosen children, the elect, those people who he will appoint, those whom he will call we start to realize, no, 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 Jeff, but it's whosoever believeth. Well, Acts 13, 48 tells us very clearly, and as many as heard this, they began to rejoice. And as many as were appointed eternal life, those are the ones that believed. You're gonna have to deal with this word, no matter what emotions it evokes in you. Or even maybe the emotion that comes from the word hate. Does God really hate we can't think of this in the terms of human hate. It is, in fact, an expression of displeasure. There's three different uses of the word hate in Scripture, right? Um, there's hate in the regards with ill will. If you want to look these up, Matthew 5.43, Matthew 5.44, Matthew 10.22, all talk about ill will hate. Or uh, the word could mean to, det to detest or to abhor to have great displeasure, John 3.20, Romans 7.15. Or it could mean simply less affection, to love less, to esteem less, Matthew 6.24 or Luke 14.26. But it's important, Paul is not lying here, he's telling the truth and he wants to make sure that you understand this, so he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Just like it says in Psalm 5, uh, Psalms 105.5, right? It says that, that he hates all whom do iniquity. That's all of us. We all commit sin. So there's a displeasure that takes place with those who are sinners. That's all of us. But what Paul's doing here is he's quoting actually Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other words, isn't he part of the chosen? He came from Isaac. The covenant declares the Lord. Yet, he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Here's how he qualifies his hatred of Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. You're gonna have to wrestle with this because he detests Esau. And the injustice that takes place here is that he would love Jacob, not that he would hate Esau. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. It leads us to our point three that he has, which is gonna be verses 14 through 18. And it's a question, is God unjust? Is he just not just? He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul is being abundantly clear. The awesome thing here is that the injustice is often assumed, right? A lot of people will say, man, it's unfair that he hates Esau. Esau didn't do anything wrong. He even said he's done nothing wrong and he hated him. But he also expressed why. So that his purpose of election might stand his plan. It's always been about his plan. 
right? We come up with all kinds of schemes, all kinds of plans. Jonah had a great idea. I'll get out of Judah, I'll head an opposite direction to Tarshish, and then I don't have to go and share the gospel with those people in Nineveh. They're filthy. No one wants them anyways. You're going to Nineveh. Because it's his plan. It's his purpose. He wants to be careful here, and he wants to clearly articulate that there's no injustice, and here's why there's no injustice. He says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment, while grace is the act of endowing unmerited favor. In his mercy, God does not give us the punishment we deserve, namely hell, mainly smudging you off his earth, right? We even understand, right, when we look and we research Esau, Esau lived a full life. Esau had many children. Esau had great land. Esau had a lot of blessings. This is what we simply call common grace. This is the mercy of God, not just simply smudging him off his earth, although he deserved that. Who didn't deserve something was Jacob, He cheated his brother out of his birthright. He lied, he cheated, he stole. He was a horrible individual. He was probably the worst teenager that you've ever seen in your life. But God showed his grace because God gives us the gift that we do not deserve, namely heaven, eternity with him. Mercy and grace are the utmost attributes of God's love. Paul is quoting here Exodus 33, 19, where it says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Look at what he says in verse 16. He's gonna take even another end run out here. And he's gonna say in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Human will is our desire. You can't wish your way into heaven. And then he wants to make sure you understand it. You can't exert yourself. You can't work your way into heaven either. It's not based upon human will or the things you do. It's not merited. You haven't been chosen and put on his team because you're going to add value or benefit to his kingdom. You've been put on his team because he set his affection of love in premeditation upon you before the foundation of the world. Not because of you, but so that he could reveal the glory of himself upon vessels of mercy. God is revealing himself here and that the wrath of God would be revealed against all ungodliness. Well, how is he gonna do that? Because all are ungodly. I'm gonna save some. That's what he's done. Look at what he says in verse 17. It says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is what God's doing. For this very purpose, he's doing it to show his power, his sovereignty. It is his plan. And what is his plan? That you and I would proclaim his name in all the earth because it's all about him. You see, we start to sit here and we say to ourselves, but Jeff, I mean, there's a lot of good people out there. 
There's a lot of people who do good things for this world and they don't know Jesus. Paul has already addressed this when he said to us in Romans 3 that there's no one who's righteous, there's no one who seeks God, there's no one who does good, no, not even one. We got to stop comparing ourselves to the person next door. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's about glorifying God through faith in his holiness, in his perfection, because that's the only thing that will allow you to enter into his presence, to stare him in the eyes as holy and blameless because he put his sovereign election upon you. The question you should be asking is quite simply, out of 7.8 billion people in this world walking this earth today, why? in the world did God set his affection upon you? And what are you doing about it? He gave you this incredible gift, not so you can take it and hide it under a bushel. That light is for the world, to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, to set other people free because they too are the seed of Isaac. They are the ones that God has chosen. None will escape his hand. None will be lost. All will be saved that God has set his purpose it is plan upon. <coughs> so what? It's his power, not ours. It should free us to have hope because if it was dependent upon me, that'd be like asking me to come change your tire on your car. It's not going to happen. <laughs> These hands are baby smooth. But he says, so then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Man, we struggle with that word harden. God's hardening people? God hardens people by strengthening the resolve they have formed in their own heart. I want to be clear about this. God does not make a good-hearted person, a brother or a sister in Christ, hard. He makes a hard-hearted person who's void of Christ more resolved to be hardened. Remember the Hebrews? They wandered in the desert for 40 years. God's providing manna for them every single day. They're wandering for probably a walk that should have been an 11-mile journey. They're walking in circles. They're passing their own dead. They're coming upon over and over again. And they are labeled an obstinate and a disobedient people because their heart is hardened. They don't turn to him in faith. It's faith that he wants to call them to. As I call the worship and prayer team forward, I want us to remember that this faith is a part of it. He's revealing his power. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God even unto salvation. And everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, God brought it to the Jew first. And Paul later will tell us that now he's making the Jew jealous because he's pouring his mercy upon the Gentiles in that faith. So what's our takeaway? We walk by faith, not by sight. It's not by our sight. God wants us to be in a place, in a position of faith, of utter trust in him. Dependence upon him. 
Horatio Spafford in this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, says these words. He says, oh Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight. Man, what a beautiful picture that is. This moment when you leave this world, you enter into his presence and you stare face to face with Jesus. Your faith is gone for your sight has been revealed. You stand face to face with him. And he's the one who got you there, bringing you along. This is a merciful God who decided with premeditation before the foundation of the world to give you mercy rather than condemnation. The people who are recipients of his mercy are those who are physical descendants, who are physical descendants of Abraham, yes. But the people who are recipients of his mercy are those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham. I hope you're connecting the dots. Because here's the dots. Paul said to us in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit working in us, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He told us in Romans 4, 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham, it's about faith. Romans 6, 4, he tells us we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order. Why did he do this? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or Romans 6, 11, he told us, he says, so you must, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this isn't about living your life and then dying. It's about recognizing that you were dead in your trespasses and you've been made alive in Jesus Christ for all eternity. He's telling us in Romans 6, 18, I have, and having been set free from sin, I have become a slave of righteousness. I am attached to Jesus. I am toggled to him at the hip. Everywhere he goes, I go too. In Romans 8, 5, he says, for those who live according to the flesh, right, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if he resides in you, is drawing you and leading you to trust and depend upon him. Your trials, your afflictions, your circumstances are for your good and his glory. He told you in Romans 8, 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, dead to sin, because of sin, the spirit is life because of the righteousness that now dwells in you. And how did he do all this? 829, for those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreknew, four times in the New Testament, foreknowledge is used, and every single time it's about foreknowing people. He foreknew people, and he wants to make sure you also understand this. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're the brothers. He's our big brother. And he's the firstborn of all creation. That's the beauty of the gospel. For those that believe by God's sovereign election, 
It is by his power. His power is what causes and propels you to proclaim his name above all other names. Put your hope in him. I don't know what emotions you're feeling, but if you're angry, trust Christ. If you're anxious, trust Christ. If you're feeling hopeless, trust Christ. And when you trust Christ, nothing in this world can separate you from the love of this God. Amen? Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you as your humble servants, asking for your guidance in our lives. Help us, Lord, not to steal or rob one ounce of glory from you in all your works and all your righteousness, but help us, Lord, to glorify you in everything we say, everything that we do, may it be all for you. Help us, Lord, now to stand and rise and worship this God by running to the Father. Brothers and sisters, as we run to our Heavenly Father, know that with premeditation, He puts you on His team, not because of you, but because of Him. Let it reflect the glory and the beauty of His Son. This is the one who came and sacrificed, who substituted Himself on your behalf not in a hope or a wish that you would choose him, but then in the fact that he chose you. Help us, help us all to grow in this grace. For we don't know who God's chosen are, so we must be lights, be faithful with the truth of God to everyone we encounter, that we draw upon his word, the security and our trust. We may wish that we could trade ourselves, but when we find ourselves hopeless. And is God going to save my child? Is God going to save my marriage? Is God going to help me in this situation? Put your faith and your trust in Christ. Rejoice over whatever he's doing. For he works all things, not only to our good, but for his glory. Amen. Our father and a God be with us as we go forward. Lights in this very dark world. Help us Lord to be bold in our faith, our trust in you. And Lord, let us not rob one second, one moment of your glory, but may it all be for you. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.